Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, The Miracle of Gathering. It's based upon the lectionary readings for July 25th, 2021. Early last winter, my next-door neighbor and I happened to step onto our back patios at the same time. I was taking out recycling, and she was tending to her plants. We pulled our masks over our faces and chatted for a moment by the fence. We bemoaned the long, terrible isolation of quarantine. We noted the fact that neither of our families would get to see our loved ones over the holidays. We wondered when we'd ever have friends inside our homes again, when we'd gather at restaurants or sit around our own dinner tables with people outside our immediate pods. And then we paused and looked at each other hopefully. Was there any way our two families could share a meal safely? Wouldn't it be fun, so wonderful, so life-giving, if we could? After much discussion, we decided to do it. We chose a night and agreed on all the rules. We'd open the gate between our patios and sit outside, distanced to two tables, wearing masks whenever we weren't actively eating. Each family would bring their own plates and cups and cutlery. We wouldn't share serving utensils but we'd still be together, plan a menu, share food and wine, talk, laugh, eat, drink, gather. When I look back now on the long, fear-filled winter of 2020, that November meal shines out like a beacon. I remember with such fondness the effort our two families put into making the evening festive, the way we scrubbed down our patio furniture and pulled out our fancy linens and dishes, the candles we lit and the wine we opened, the favorite dishes we prepared for each other, and the way we lingered at our tables late into the evening, long after the sun went down and the night grew cold. This week, our lectionary reading centers around a shared meal. Specifically, it centers around Jesus' multiplication of loaves and fishes to feed a crowd of 5,000. This is the only Jesus story that appears six times across the four Gospels. Clearly, the event meant a lot to the early church. But I wonder if it might mean a lot to us this year, too, after the long isolation we've just endured. I know that there are any number of conversations or even debates to be had about what exactly happened with that crowd and that little boy's lunch 2,000 years ago. Did Jesus really break the laws of science as we know them and multiply those loaves and fish? Or was the actual miracle the opening of hearts and the channeling of generosity such that 5,000 people decided, as a result of their encounter with Jesus, to share their precious food with each other? We can't know. For my part, I'm fine with believing that Jesus did something supernatural that human beings can't explain. If the God who created the cosmos and resurrected the Christ caused the content of one child's lunchbox to become a feast for thousands, I can live with that. But what strikes me about the story this year is something slightly different than the miracle of the food itself. It's the miracle of gathering. As John describes the scene, Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee and takes his disciples up a mountain. Immediately, he notices a large crowd following them, a crowd filled with hope, need, want, and hunger. Now here's the interesting part. Jesus' first thought when he sees the throngs of people approaching is, how might we create conditions where they can remain together? where they can have their needs met in community? How can we gather them and help them to receive nourishment and relationship to one another? We know from the other gospel accounts that the disciples don't share this wavelength with Jesus. In Mark's version, they object to their teacher's desire and say, this is a deserted place and the hour is now very late. 
send them away so that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. In other words, the disciples' instinct is to scatter the people, to send them off to fend for themselves, to resist the work, the burden, and the responsibility of meeting their needs in community. Maybe after the past year, we are in an especially good position to appreciate Jesus' vision. We too have been scattered. We have known the loneliness of the empty table, the unused guest room, the locked up church building, the fast from Eucharist. We have discovered anew how sacred and life-giving it is to gather and how much we ache when we're denied the means to do so. We've experienced in urgent ways how much our humanity depends on proximity, on eating together and finding nourishment together. I wish I knew the original source of this wonderful phrase, but I've heard it said more than once that Christianity is the eatingest religion in the world. Indeed. Consider how many of the Jesus stories center around meals, feasts, and dinner tables. The Gospels are full of references to Jesus eating and drinking with others. He multiplies wine in Cana to keep a party going longer. The religious leaders of his day accuse him of gluttony because he practices table fellowship with sinners. He accepts a dinner invitation of Simon, a Pharisee, and invites himself to the home of Zacchaeus, a hated tax collector. His last act of love for her disciples before his death is to gather them around a table and feed them bread, his own body. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, he does more than fill their stomachs. He encourages hungry, needy, weary people to sit down together, to notice and attend to each other, to take pleasure not only in the possibility of their own fullness, but in the fullness of the community as a whole. The point is not to hoard, scheme, conserve, or quantify. The point is to enjoy abundance in community, to learn that in God's kingdom there is enough, not just enough for one, but for many. Again, not just enough for me or for my family or for my pod, people, or tribe, but enough for absolutely everyone, with more to spare. When Jesus feeds the multitudes in one place at one time, he acknowledges that we are physical and communal beings with physical and communal needs. We're not airy, disconnected spirits. We have bodies, both individual and collective, and those bodies themselves are gifts from God, gifts worthy of honor and care. Whatever the miracle is, Jesus is able to perform it precisely because he takes these basic human needs so seriously. When his disciples look at the crowds, they see only their own insufficiency, their own scant resources, the impossibility of the situation. But Jesus allows himself to see genuine need, and he allows that need to hit him squarely in his own gut. In the face of the crowd's deep hunger, despair and apathy are not options. Someone has to act. Someone has to feed. Someone has to gather. Maybe it's only when we get in touch with our own deepest needs, for nourishment, for companionship, for proximity, for intimacy, that we can extend a generous table to others. Maybe we need to be felled by our own hungers before we can turn abstract compassion into life-saving action. The crowds ate and were satisfied. Is this because they eat in the presence of Jesus? What would that be like, to invite him to our tables, to let him watch and partake as we gather together, to welcome the incarnate Jesus into the intimate realm of our bodily hungers, our social hungers? Where might such brave communion lead? In the end, Jesus' feeding miracles are his self-revelations. He gives bread because he is bread. He makes possible the gathering of the body so that we might become his body, the church. 
May our gatherings honor his generous legacy. For books this week, Dan reviews Trust, America's Best Chance by Pete Buttigieg. Trust is in short supply these days. Consider two examples from Pete Buttigieg's newest book. In 1958, a scientific survey found that 73% of Americans trusted their government to do what is right always or most of the time. By 2019, that figure had plummeted to 19%. Or again, whereas Canada is ranked number one as the world's most trusted country, the United States is not even in the top 25 on that list. Buttigieg wants to change this. In his view, we must change this for our democracy to flourish. His book is a combination of personal, historical, and political reflections and experiences. From 2012 to 2019, he served as a two-term mayor of South Bend, Indiana, the town in which he was born and raised. After studies at Harvard and Oxford, he served in the Navy Reserve from 2009 to 2017. And in 2014, while mayor of South Bend, he was deployed to Afghanistan for seven months as an intelligence officer specializing in counterterrorism with the top-secret clearance. He reflects on his failed presidential campaign and what he's learned from things like studying Arabic in Tunisia, one of the seven languages he has studied. Buttigieg avoids both cynicism and naivete when it comes to the loss of trust, whether personal, social, political, or international. His book is forward-looking to what must come next. He examines the various causes of our loss of trust. Ronald Reagan even turned distrust of the government into a political virtue. Today, it's fashionable for all sides to hate the establishment. He pays special attention to the issues of climate change and its deniers, anti-vaxxers and the COVID pandemic, our glaring social inequalities that disenfranchise large portions of our population, our history of systemic racism, social media and conspiracy theories, and how the greater media sow distrust by peddling stories of suspicion, like birtherism. Foreign actors have sown distrust in our national life precisely because they understand that trust is a national security asset. Buttigieg is confident that we can rebuild trust if we so choose. History suggests some encouraging examples. He explores remedies like a fairer tax code, a voluntary form of national service, and a racial truth and healing commission. I wish he had addressed how ordinary citizens are supposed to rebuild trust with their political leaders, who have proven time and again how unworthy they are of our respect. In February 2021, President Biden appointed Buttigieg as the Secretary of Transportation. He's only 39, and as this book shows, he's a brilliant intellectual who has cultivated a political passion for our common life together. I'm sure we will hear more from him in our nation's future. For films this week, Dan reviews Cuba and the Cameraman. In the early 1970s, the photojournalist John Alpert took a first-generation video camera onto the streets of New York City to document social issues like sweatshops and failing schools. He then had an epiphany. We heard that Fidel Castro was implementing the social programs that we were fighting for here in New York, like free health care, housing, and education for all. And so he took his camera to Cuba, which is a mere 44-minute plane ride from the U.S. mainland. This delightful film is the result of some 1,000 hours of video footage that he took across 45 years of returning to Cuba to try to tell its story. This is not a film of political analysis. Rather, it's a deeply personal film about his love affair with that island nation, it's a socialist project, and it's many contradictions and complexities. The film begins and ends with the death of the eternal commander, Fidel Castro, whom Alpert interviewed numerous times, including one on Fidel's 90th birthday, just before he died. The real focus of the film, though, is on three ordinary families, a 
and what they thought and experienced across the 45 years that Albert kept returning to check in with them. Was Cuba a socialist paradise, or what JFK called a police state? Well, you can find both. The collapse of the Soviet Union in 1990 meant the end of $8 billion a day in subsidies, empty grocery stores, blackouts, long gas lines, shuttered factories, an emergent black market, and eventually a sort of capitalist-driven tourist industry in which former engineers and doctors sold souvenirs at street markets. But when the Maximum Leader died in 2016, as his film footage shows, thousands of people still thronged the streets and wept openly at Fidel's funeral procession. I watched this film on Netflix. And lastly, for poetry this week, Joy Harjo's Perhaps the World Ends Here. The world begins at a kitchen table. No matter what, we must eat to live. The gifts of earth are brought and prepared, set on the table. So it has been since creation and it will go on. We chase chickens or dogs away from it. Babies teeth at the corners, they scrape their knees under it. It is here that children are given instructions on what it means to be human. We make men at it. We make women. At this table we gossip, recall enemies and the ghosts of lovers. Our dreams drink coffee with us as they put their arms around our children. They laugh with us at our poor falling down selves and as we put ourselves back together once again at the table. This table has been a house in the rain, an umbrella in the sun. Wars have begun and ended at this table. It is a place to hide in the shadow of terror, a place to celebrate the terrible victory. We have given birth on this table and have prepared our parents for burial here. At this table we sing with joy, with sorrow. We pray of suffering and remorse. We give thanks. Perhaps the world will end at the kitchen table while we are laughing and crying, eating of the last sweet bite. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for July 25th, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.